WDEV in Waterbury. Welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thanks for joining us today. It's Wednesday, November 15th. And today on the program, what's going on in our politics at the national and state levels? One poll says that Trump beats Biden in the November election, in especially in battleground states. And yet Ohioans make a huge stand for abortion rights elect Democrats by a wide margin in Virginia, and re-elect in, in strong fashion the governor of Kentucky, a Democrat in a very red state. Gas prices are heading down, the economy is going in a better direction, and yet Biden is more unpopular than ever. We'll look at that with the executive director of the Vermont Democratic Party. And at 10... We'll talk to the executive director of the Vermont Republican Party. Both of these parties have conventions coming up. The Republicans have their convention this weekend. I've never been to one of these things, uh, and so I thought it would be good to talk to both of these guys about what happens at a state convention, how they elect delegates to go to the national convention, and what they what does the Republican executive director think about having Donald Trump as uh, their standard bearer? And what does the executive director of the Democratic Party think about uh, having a guy, uh, uh, this incumbent president, Biden, who uh, seems to be quite unpopular despite lots of signs to the contrary? Uh, I've never seen that in all my years in politics, so we'll get into it. Uh, with the two executive directors. At 10.30, we continue our politics conversation with our Washington expert, Bob Nay. We'll talk about Bernie Sanders' performance at a hearing yesterday uh, and what it means that Sanders uh, became a a referee, basically separating uh, people, uh, a senator and a witness at a hearing who challenged each other basically to uh, an Alexander Hamilton uh, uh, Aaron Burr beatdown uh, in the in the uh, in the United States Capitol. Um, so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the new Speaker of the House in Washington and how he has moved legislation to avert a shutdown. But uh, nobody's happy about this, although Democrats voted for it. Uh, we'll get into that with Bob Nay at 10:30. Uh, I know Bob usually comes on the show on Fridays, but. Uh, we want to get. Uh, we had to cancel him last week, so we're going to get him for a full half-hour segment today. So we'll really get into it. As always, we welcome your comments and calls. The number to call is 802-244-1777. My email is vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. That's all coming up. But first, a quick update on the war between Israel and Hamas. I sat down at a table at the Red Hen Bakery yesterday in Middlesex around lunchtime. And a friend was there. She's Jewish. She's deeply affected by the war between Israel and Hamas. She's been following the news every day. And suddenly, she was crying. It's so difficult to talk about this issue. And yet, so important to keep talking about it. To keep learning about it. About this issue so far away. And it begins with our vocabulary. How we talk about this. How we talk about any issue. Writer Eric Levitz wrote about this issue in New York Magazine last week. He wrote about anti-Semitism and what it means, the the weight, uh, the importance of terminology surrounding the war in Israel. 
and he says it this way. Debates over Israel's policies have always been plagued by anti-Semitism and specious allegations of the same. This is especially the case in the current moment. Hamas's mass murder of Israeli Jews and others has prompted some of the of Palestine's sympathizers to betray their disregard for Jewish life. Israel's mass killing of Palestinian civilians in Gaza, meanwhile, has led its knee-jerk defenders to use baseless allegations of bigotry as a means of disqualifying legitimate dissent. The president of the Anti-Defamation League has called a left-wing Jewish organization protesting the bombing of Gaza a hate group because it opposes Israel's right to defend itself. Republicans in the House have censured Representative Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian-American in Congress, for criticizing Israel's occupation of Palestinian territories in her first statement after the October 7th attack. At the same time, genuinely hateful speech has been disconcertingly prevalent online and in the streets, with some supporters of Palestine celebrating the largest mass killing of Jews since the Holocaust. In this chaotic environment, people may struggle to discern which suddenly ubiquitous phrases such as settlers, from the river to the sea, genocide, apartheid, and express legitimate points of view and which convey bigotry. Even a supporter of a ceasefire might wonder, am I supposed to be angry at people who use those words or be sensitive to them? Or should I agree with them? Too often, arguments about anti-Semitism get bogged down in assertions about a given claim's motivation, which is in most cases unknowable. So in determining whether a statement should be branded as anti-Semitic, let's focus on its explicit meaning, not its alleged motivations. Some speech acts inherently devalue Jewish life. Others don't. Here's the tack I took with my friend at the Redhead Bakery yesterday. I just shut up and listened because she was far more of an expert on the issue than me. And uh, I get to talk on the radio a lot. But when it comes to a really complicated issue like this, I said to myself, she needs to talk. I need to listen. And it was worth it. So we'll be right back. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's WDEV. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Our first guest today is the executive director of the Vermont Democratic Party. His name is Jim Dantonow, and he joins us right now. Jim, welcome to the show. Kevin, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay. So I got to start. I want to start at the national level before we get local. Um, we, we've all been obsessing about this. New York Times Siena poll that says that the, the, the President Joe Biden is not that popular and that Donald Trump mm-hmm. is actually winning in various uh, uh, battleground states. Gas okay. prices are down. You, inflation's going down. Biden's mm-hmm. assembled a coalition to support Ukraine. Uh, like it or hate it, he's, he's acting on, on the Israeli-Hamas conflict and yet he remains unpopular according to these polls. And I got to tell you, I don't get it. Maybe you can explain it. Uh, I mean, 
the way that I would explain it is to look at the election results from last week, right? Right. Um, oh, you beat me to I it. Know. I was going to get to that. Right. Uh, well, so, <laughs> you know, a great man once said the only thing we have to fear is monocausality, right? Um, the, the poll numbers, there are a number of different factors that go into poll numbers. But the thing you have to remember is poll numbers are a snapshot of a group's opinion at a moment in time, right? Um, and in a world where the news cycle lasts 33 minutes, yeah. things change instantly. Things, cha- things are going to change a million times between now and next year's election. And things changed uh, you know, a million times between when that poll was in the field in early October and when people went to the voting booths in November in Pennsylvania and New Jersey and Virginia and Mississippi and Idaho and, you know, all over the all over the country. And by the time folks went to the polls to cast their votes for Democrats or Republicans, overwhelmingly, they chose Democrats in places where everyone was assuming there was going to be a red wave. Right. In Virginia, where folks expected Glenn Youngkin to uh, get a Republican majority and shove through a 15-week abortion ban. Democrats not only held the Senate, but also, in a surprise, took back the House. In New Jersey, where Republicans a week before the election were gloating about how many seats they were going to pick up, Democrats are currently plus six in the Assembly with more still to come, right? In Pennsylvania, where county election boards, which are going to oversee the counts next year, were up for grabs, where school boards we're looking at Moms for Liberty candidates running for, you know, to ban books and, and harass trans teenagers. The, the Republicans got swept out of office in those places, even in Idaho. It, for I think it was a school, uh, was it mayors in Idaho? There was a mayor's race in Idaho where there was a far-right MAGA candidate and a moderate Democrat. And in Idaho, people chose the moderate Democrat. So, I, you know, polls are useful data points, but not narratives. Uh, and there is a desire to turn a bad poll into a narrative right. that the press has been pushing since before the 2022 midterms. And every single time that Democrats have been called on to get out to the polls, basically since Trump got elected in 2016, Democrats have shown up. Uh, you know, in 2018, we had blue, the blue wave. In 2020, we had some quirks, uh, but, uh, you know, Biden won. Uh, and, and in the end, Biden won by a not insignificant margin. In, 22, in 2022, uh, you know, the, the 2022 midterms, the red wave that was coming, Democrats won. In the 2023 elections, Democrats won. So, you know, I, this is not to say we can – Set everything to cruise control for the next year. We all have a job to do. We have to do that job well. We have to do it effectively. But if we do our jobs and put our heads down and ignore the the doom and gloom folks that have either uh, you know a financial vested interest in promoting a horse race or don't know quite frankly don't know what they're talking about. They're amateur uh, you know armchair political strategists. Right. Just put your heads down. Do the work. We'll get it done. Okay. So let's talk about those. Uh, well, Obama campaign manager uh, David Pluff back in the old days uh, used to call those people bedwetters. Let's talk about the bedwetters for a minute. Um, sure. The, I mean, everybody I talk to talks about 
the president's age. Um, mm-hmm. And it becomes, and I totally agree with you about the sort of media narrative. You know, writing about polls is easy. You know, the poll, the poller, <laughs> pollster did the work for you. So all you have to do is regurgitate the store, uh, the the poll results for your story. Quote two people, and you've got your story. But there, there, I mean, on the street. Everybody talks about the president's age, and it's not something you can change with a new policy. No. And, uh, you know, ad- address that. I mean, he's the horse that you are riding, and, uh, you know, you better hope he doesn't break down, right? I, so I've been in the same room as him uh once, I, so, uh, you know, my first as executive director, I went to a, a DMC meeting last September and the president addressed us there and he's, he's still got it. He's sharp as hell. Um, you know, he, he was not, he was off script and chatting with folks uh, from the stage. He was sharp. He was funny. He owned the room. He was charming. Um, he's a really gifted retail politician yeah. and the demands of the job, especially right now with all of the chaos in the world, are such that he doesn't have the opportunity to spend as much time with regular folks as we probably would like. Yeah. But that's going to change over the course of the next year. And I think as he gets out there and as he spends more time talking to folks directly to folks and being in the same room as people, um, I think that that's going to alleviate some of the concerns. I also think that you have to remember that an election is in uh, first-past-the-post um system, it is a usually a binary choice between one of two candidates. And the Republican front runner is uh, forgetting where he is and uh, attacking judges at his court hearings while he is threatening the vermin leftists from his own social media network. And I think when folks are given the opportunity to choose between um, the, the vile MAGA hate that Donald Trump is putting out into the world and Joe Biden's common measured and reasonable leadership. I'm confident that the, that the age conversation is going to be irrelevant. Yeah. Okay. So I, I buy that argument and yet mm-hmm. uh, millions and millions of people vote for Donald Trump. 91, sure. uh, 91 criminal charges, um, mm-hmm. civil suits, that's going to end in, well, he's already been declared, I don't think guilty is the right word, but in the civil suit about his business and inflating yeah. evaluations of that. In the old days, and I'm thinking back to, you know, you were in diapers, but I'm thinking back to the Gary Hart days where he allegedly spent an evening with a woman who was not his wife. He was out of the mm-hmm. race in a week. Uh, mm-hmm. I Can you explain, I ask this of every guest, can you explain how we got here? Can you explain how a guy like Trump uh, survives, uh, whether it's the the tape during the campaign in 16 or all of this, and nothing seems to change in terms of his popularity? Uh, I would actually dispute that. I think that his popularity – he's been slowly bleeding support. Right. Um, and I think, I think what you're getting at – is part of why you see some Democratic dissatisfaction with Biden, right? Yeah. It is, you know, folks look at Trump and find Trump so abhorrent as a human being, as a politician, as a leader, 
that they think, oh, my God, why aren't we beating this guy by more? Right. And they start casting about for a unicorn that would magically defeat, you know, the, the Republican hate machine that's been spun up over the last 20 years. And um, the, I think what we have to understand is that there are some folks who genuinely like what this Republican Party is peddling. Uh, you know, you have the MAGA cohort in the House of Representatives that just wants to watch everything burn. Uh, you have folks at school board levels and at local levels who, you know, you have, you have state legislators in North Carolina and Wisconsin who only care about their own personal power and are willing to sacrifice whatever morals they might have had to gerrymander their state into uncompetitiveness so that they can retain control. And, you know, you have all of these folks making these deals with the devil that unleashed the, the force of Donald Trump on the world. This is not, you know, this is not something that came out of nowhere. This is, you know, I remember Bush's people pushing real hatred, um, you know, during during their their term in office. And the thing that stopped them, the thing that kept them from being more popular was the financial collapse. Um, but at least even even back then, they had to put a veneer of compassionate conservatism on it while they were running anti-gay amendments to try and goose turnout in Ohio, right? Right. This is not, you know, so ultimately, this this all goes back to a longer time than than even Gary Hart, right? The Southern strategy with right. Nixon and Reagan is is where all of this was born. It's, you know, this stuff was born with Goldwater in the 60s. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the, it's just, this is the culmination. And, and I think that's part of the stress that people are feeling too, is because very, it very much feels like a tipping point election. And I know all of them have been tipping point elections for the last eight years, but, you know, the, the reality is that Trump has been bleeding support, that people are leaving the Republican Party. If you look at the turnout numbers from the primary, from our primary last year, the, the baseline turnout number was about the same in 2022 as it was in 2016. But there were something like 30,000 more votes cast in the Democratic primary than in the Republican one. And uh, or, I'm sorry, 30,000 more votes in the Democratic primary in 22 than there were in 2016. And those all came out of the Republican number. There were 30,000 fewer votes in the Republican primary than there were in 2016. And, you know, people, people are being truly turned off by, you know, we had our, so we had our state, we, we've been or, reorganizing, right? Every two years, the, the Democratic Party, the major parties in Vermont have to hold town organizing meetings and then county organizing meetings and state organizing meetings. And we're going to, we're going to elect new officers for our state committee on Saturday in Barrie. Um, but we did, we ran trainings for folks over the summer on how to conduct your town meetings. And, and one of the questions that came up in one of those trainings was, you know, what if we have like Republican infiltrators? And I said, don't, what, what you have to do is you have to understand that they may not be infiltrators. They might, may not be there to be causing trouble. They may be there because they are genuinely curious about what the Democratic Party is all about. You know, we've seen folks leaving the Republican Party in a slow trickle starting at the turn of the century, but really accelerating pace since 2016 and Donald Trump's election. And 
you know, we have to we have to extend our hand in good faith to those folks because we share you know, the folks who are leaving the Republican Party because of Donald Trump. Nine times out of ten, it's because we share some core values with them, and they don't see those values reflected in the modern Republican Party. They don't see a party that's interested in helping people. They see a party that's interested in hurting people and tearing things down and destroying things and consolidating their own power. And it's not, you know, they're not using power to help people. They're using power for themselves. And folks are, are showing up at Democratic organizations, at Democratic meetings, saying, all right, let's give this a try. And, you know, so I think that I, I, I want to get back to this to dispute the idea that Donald Trump is as popular as ever. He's not. Um, okay. It's our electoral system is designed to allow him to hang on for longer than he is actually popular, but he's, you know, his numbers. And, and yeah. And, down and speaking of our electoral system in, uh, in the minute we have left before the break, Jill Stein, Bobby Kennedy, Cornell West, and maybe Joe Manchin, uh, I, I can't – it's way above my pay grade to know whether they would take votes away from Joe Biden or Donald Trump. But, uh, boy, that, thro do, that but throws a, a wrench time. into the works. Well, there's a, there, it's a long time between now and primary days, and uh, it's a long time between now and filing deadlines for candidates to get on the ballot. I can tell you um, I haven't heard of any of them sniffing around to get on the ballot in Vermont. Right. And I'm – you know, we'll see if they follow through. Cornell West is on his what fourth political party this year. Yeah. Uh, like, let's let's. I'll believe it when I see it. Um, I, I'm not going to worry about the things that we can't control at this point. Uh, you know, everyone knows that Jill Stein is a grifter. So, uh, you know, I, I think I don't think people are going to be buying what they're selling at this point. Fascinating. Okay, let's take a phone call from Mark in Bristol. Mark, you're on the show. Welcome. Hey, thank you. Uh, I just wanted to know if you folks could comment on Dean Phillips, who says he's running. Great question. You know, I was I was at a college reunion with a guy this weekend who's really good friends with Dean Phillips, does not support his candidacy, but says he's a very bright guy and uh, worth listening to. Jim, what do you make of this? Uh, is is Phillips, is that a is that a primary challenge? Can he get on the ballot? How is this all going to work? Yeah, I mean, it, in Vermont, it's really easy to get on the ballot. Vermont, one of the one of my favorite things about living here is, um, you know, Vermont really wants fun, folks to run for office and participate, so we make it as easy as possible. Um, the threshold to qualify for the ballot for a presidential primary is really low. Um, you only need, I think, 500 signatures, and you have to pay a filing fee, which gets waived if you can't afford it. Um, so. I would assume that Phillips is going to be on the ballot here, um, but it's, I think, too early to tell whether there's anything to pay attention to. Um, you know, but I have seen some things that concern me uh, about Republicans being involved with his campaign. Um, but, you know, again, I think we'll see what happens over the course of the next couple of months. Okay. Uh, I want to ask you about... New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez, especially because I'm mm -hmm. from New Jersey and know the guy just a little bit. Uh, yeah. And I wonder if there isn't something to the notion that Menendez, uh, who by all accounts uh, 
is you know innocent until until proven guilty. But gold bars in your jackets in your house in New Jersey, uh, not a good look. Uh, well, and they're his emotional support gold bars. They're his emotional support gold bars. Okay, so I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna make a. Uh, I'm going to make a claim here and easily disprove, but Democrats seem to call out their bad actors, whereas Republicans, uh, in large part, continue to defend Trump, at least publicly. Is there anything well, to that, or do I have that wrong? It's not just it's not it's not that they continue to defend it's and it's not just Trump, right? Um, you know, George Santos hasn't is still somehow a member of the House of Representatives. Uh, Matt Gates still somehow a member of the House of Representatives. Um, you know, this is Republicans close ranks, um, and I think that it is one of the most disappointing uh, developments of this generation of politics. Um, is that they, as long as as long as the Republican makes Democrats angry, they are willing to put up with a lot. But what if what um, if what has the Democratic Party done with Menendez? Has I don't think Chuck Schumer has demanded his resignation yet. Schumer hasn't, but plenty of Schumer allies have, and plenty of folks in the Senate have, um, you know, in his in his caucus, and that's not something you see coming out of the Republicans. Right. Okay. Uh, so, and, and last question on national politics. So Joe Manchin mm-hmm. has decided not to run for re-election. This throws the narrow Senate Democratic majority into doubt. If a Republican wins in West Virginia, um, you have a 50-50 Senate and you are defending other Democratic Senate seats. How do you see this playing out? Too early to say. Okay. Um, you know, the Senate map is, is really tough for us right now, yeah. but we have really talented candidates. Um, you know, I think the, the toughest holds on, uh, on the map are Ohio and Montana. And we have two, you know, Sherrod Brown and John Tester, spectacular, um, senators and, and really strong campaigners. So, you know, I, I, we have some places where we might be able to pick up seats. We'll see what happens. Uh, you know, I'm not sure. What, but it's, uh, you know, again, we're a year out. Um, we yeah. still have candidates to recruit and folks to nail down. And the Republicans still have candidates to recruit and folks to nail down. And I think that's, you know, I, I, we, we should nobody should write anything off at this point. OK, now for the political junkies out there uh, who want to run and win an election, can you explain how Andy Bashir, the governor of Kentucky, uh, win, the Democratic governor of Kentucky wins re-election in overwhelming fashion in a deeply red state like Kentucky. What did he do, or what does he do, to be so popular? Uh, so I will, I will say I have limited uh, depth of understanding of what happened in all of these other races, but from what I have processed, Bashir won like that because he helped a lot of people. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the flooding, the devastating flooding that hit Kentucky um, hit some pretty red areas, uh, especially hard. And the governor showed up and helped out and, and people got the help that they needed from government. And they rewarded Governor Bashir with their support. Uh, and, you know, not there there isn't one neat trick to winning elections as a Democrat. But the best way 
to get a lot of support is to do a lot of good for a lot of people. <laughs> That's uh, how old fashioned. Just do your job and do know, good right? for people. Um, okay. To expect competence. Okay, let's let's move to Vermont. Uh, mm-hmm. The Democratic Party, as I'm fond of saying, uh, completely controls the apparatus of state government, uh, the legislature especially. Well, no, 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 no. I'm gonna I'm gonna oh good that right off the bat. Jump right? in. Um, the Democratic Party controls every statewide office except governor. The Democratic Party controls the legislature, but. The apparatus of government is, uh, you know, every state agency and all of the people who work at those state agencies, and that is controlled by Phil Scott. The, the, the apparatus of government that is the largest employer in the state of Vermont, the, the apparatus that is responsible for providing help and services to 500,000 Vermonters is controlled by Phil Scott, and, by Republican. And he is far and away... Uh, one of the more popular Republicans in Vermont and the country. How do you explain that? He's being graded on a curve, and people have limited bandwidth to process anything other than the immediate crises that they face. Right. Um, you know, and Phil Scott is not an existential crisis for Vermonters the way that climate change is, the way that child care costs are, the way that housing costs are. Um, he is not uh, obvious and aggressive crisis to people the way that someone like Christy Nome or Ron DeSantis is or Donald Trump is. He is a Republican in normal ways. He doesn't like taxes. He doesn't like Democrats. He doesn't agree with Democrats and what they do. So people take state politics off of their emotional plate uh, and their intellectual plate. And uh, as long as Folks don't have to pay attention to the issues. He's going to stay popular. But I think that circumstance is starting to intervene a little bit there. Um, you know, I think that there has been a lackluster flood response uh, from the governor's folks. I think that, you know, his uh, lack of response to all of the immediate crises in people's lives, the housing crisis, the child care crisis, the climate crisis, the substance use crisis, and uh, it is causing folks to start to take a second look there. I'm hearing more grumbling now than I have in the previous seven years that he's been in office. And um, I am. Well, I, I think that a Democrat running with uh, running a well-resourced campaign with a strong vision for what we might be able to do, what we could be doing now if we had some constructive leadership with a vision um, is going to find uh, fertile ground for that. I uh, have had Burlington Mayor Murrow Weinberger on this show, and I see him on the street whenever I'm in town, and it's pretty clear that he is gearing up to run for governor as a Democrat. What what can you say or not say about that? I, I we have uh, nobody's nobody uh, nobody has announced uh, their candidates for governor. And, uh, you know, in the case of a contested primary, uh, we're going to have to be very careful about uh, supporting anyone uh, because we want the best candidate to win. And the best candidate has not announced it because no one has announced for okay. governor yet. All right. Um, so we're, we're, you know, no, we're not commenting on any potential candidates. Uh, you know, I think that Mayor Weinberger has some strengths that I think contrast very well with the governor's failures in office. 
and it would be would certainly be an interesting race. Okay, Jim, uh, you've got some you got a convention coming up. Can you give us a civics lesson? Because it seems like everyone in this country, including me, has lost touch with how our political system actually works. You're in charge of the mechanics. Tell us what's coming yeah. up in the Democratic Party well, around the convention. Sure, we don't have a convention coming up. We have a state committee meeting and the election of officers. So, uh, like I said earlier, every two years, uh, you know, new Democratic parties come together and, and choose leadership in, in the towns in September and in the counties in October, and then the state chooses its Democratic Party leadership in November. And this is the, this is the case for all of the major parties in Vermont. The Prague's and the Republicans do the same. Uh, we are having our election in Barrie. Uh, it's going to be a regular state committee meeting. We're welcoming all of the new state committee members who were elected at their county meetings in October. Uh, we're going to be laying out the plan for the next year through the election and uh, starting to marshal the support that we need to run a robust campaign to support Democrats up and down the ballot. Uh, the Republicans are holding a convention this week that coincides with their officer elections. Uh, and it looks like they're charging people to get into the election process, which is certainly interesting. But what, what drew my attention is they have a number of guests announced. Uh, they are going to have some policy brexit or policy briefings from state legislators like Randy Brock and Casey Tooth and Chris Matos and Ann Donahue. Uh, they're also inviting a terrorist to speak. Uh, Scott Pressler is a member of uh, recognized by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a hate group. Uh, he was uh, one of the founders of Gays for Trump. He was a Stop the Steal activist uh, and who dabbled in some QAnon stuff and was a VIP promoter of the rally that kicked off the attempted coup on January 6th. And he is the state Republican Party's, uh, I think, honored guest featured speaker. I forget what the language they use uh, in it is. But they sent out a very excited email promoting this guy's appearance. Um, and I found it morally abhorrent that they would invite this guy uh, to speak. And what interested me especially is how little responsibility Phil Scott seems to take for the, the shenanigans of his own party, you know, the most popular governor in America wouldn't take a whole hell of a lot of work for him to make a few phone calls and say, this is unacceptable. And I'm going to find some new people to take charge of this Republican party, but he chooses not to do that. Uh, and I, I would love to know the reason why he chooses not to fix his own party in Vermont. Uh, you know, the, the cynic in me, and I am a, of course, a professional cynic, the, the cynic in me says that he doesn't, his own party because they are a useful contrast that he can provide to his own lack of leadership, but certainly moderate seeming lack of leadership. The, uh, he can point to these people being dangerous pranks and say, at least I'm not like them. The uh, press secretary to the governor, I'm looking at a, at a story here. Jason Malucci calls your attacks on the, uh, on this issue ridiculous and desperate uh, and fortunately irrelevant. The governor, like vast majority of Vermonters, does not concern himself with hyperpartisan attacks from either side of the aisle. Uh, but I, I, it is an interesting question. Uh, the governor is not going to this event. I heard him on the radio yeah. today say that he's 
doing flood-related events the way he does most every weekend. Why Why cool. do you think the governor doesn't uh, attend this event? Because he doesn't have to. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, you know, until he says otherwise and until he puts the work in to fix his own party, I'm going to assume that the cynical reason is the accurate one. Uh, you know, Phil Scott benefits immensely from not being a dangerous right-wing ideologue, but he also benefits immensely from having dangerous right-wing ideologues to contrast himself with. And as long as the Vermont Republican Party is enthusiastically platforming these ideologues, he has someone close to home that he can point to and say, I'm not like that. And Democrats will give him points for that. And the Democrats have been giving him points for that uh, since he first got elected in 2016. Right. So, you know, he, the, the example that I like to use is the Burlington Republicans, right? The Burlington Republican chair uh, is a known harasser is, you know, the only guy out there protesting the truck pull. He allies himself with guys who are armed and stickering in the city of Burlington and it would it would take literally five phone calls from the most popular governor in America to people in Burlington to say, I don't want this guy to be chair anymore. Can you come to a meeting and elect someone else to be chair? Five phone. There are there are honest to God, I'm pretty sure there are only four people in the Burlington Republican Party. If he finds five other people to do this, then this guy is not the chair of the Burlington Republican Party anymore. And he doesn't do it. And he can't tell me that he's too busy to call five people in Burlington. You can't tell me that he is too busy to fix the Republican Party in Vermont when people know that having two functioning parties is the two functioning major parties, one on the left and one on the right, is how our system has been constructed over the last 60 years. And that if we want a return to normalcy, we need the Republican Party to return to normal. And they are not following his example, so he's going to have to actually put some work in. And uh, he chooses not to. Jim, I ask this question a lot, and that is, you just said it, a return to normalcy. And I assume you're thinking about a return to the days in the early 2000s or the 90s or the 80s where there's a sensible uh, moderates on both sides, uh, you know, argue it out and eventually make a deal in, in the interests of the people. I, I, isn't there a third way here where instead of going back to normalcy, go ahead to some sort of better system, uh, a better media, a better, I saw Bernie Sanders talk about this on CNN last night, a, a, you know, a better media, a better, better parties on both sides, better public conversation. How would you construct our system to make it better going forward? Oof. Uh, not in a way that I could explain in three minutes. Right. Uh, you know, this is, this is a huge problem. And I think you're getting at something that the, that a, a democratic candidate for governor is going to have to articulate to people. And that is, there are lots of things about our society and our way of life that are not working and are not going to work moving into the future. And it's going to take some creativity and some vision and some, energy and enthusiasm and excitement and some of the leadership to get us there. Uh, but, you know, we've seen time and time again, 
Vermonters come together and find a way to, if not solve the problems, at least make things better for their neighbors. And we're not getting that out of the governor right now. We are getting a bare minimum of competence coupled with uh, a refusal to provide a long-term vision for the future of Vermont. And I think that we need what we've been working on in the Democratic Party is fostering some of that vision and finding people to do the grassroots party building work who are going to figure out a way to get to yes on a future for Vermont. And I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm excited. What's the top priority for in 30 seconds, uh, the Vermont Democratic Party in the upcoming legislative election? I'm sorry, legislative session. I, you know, I haven't had conversations with legislative leadership about uh, any of that stuff yet. My top priority, quite frankly, is planning for the national convention. Uh, it's not something I've ever done before. Uh, it's a massive lift to get 30 people out to the convention in Chicago and yeah. fund that and get the events that we need to schedule. So that has been consuming more of my time and attention than planning for a legislative session. We've got really sharp, talented legislators in both houses okay. who have... Who, who are going to handle it. They're going we, to do great. we got to go. Jim Dandenau, thank you very much. Executive Director of Vermont Democratic Party. We'll see you down the road. Kevin Ellis, Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV. Mm-hmm.